Chapter Nineteen of God's Country and the Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. God's Country and the Woman by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Nineteen. The window was open when Philip came to it, and Jean was waiting to give him an assisting hand. The moment he was in the room, he turned to look at Josephine. She was gone. Almost angrily, he whirled upon the half-breed, who had lowered the window, and was now drawing the curtain. It was with an effort that he held back the words on his lips. Jean saw that effort, and shrugged his shoulders with an appreciative gesture. "'It is partially my fault that she is not here, monsieur,' he explained. "'She would have told you nothing of what has passed between us, not as much, perhaps, as I.' She will see you in the morning. And there's damned little consolation at the present moment in that, gritted Philip, with clenched hands. Jean, I am ready to fight now. I feel like a rat must feel when it's cornered. I've got to jump pretty soon, in some direction, or I'll bust. It's impossible. Jean's hand fell softly upon his arm. Monsieur, would you cut off this right arm, if it would give you Josephine? I'd cut off my head exploded philip do you remember that it was only a few hours ago that i said that she could never be yours in this world quisette reminded him in the same quiet voice and now when even i say there is hope can you not make me have the confidence in you that i must have if we win philip's face relaxed in silence he gripped jean's hand and what i am going to tell you a thing which Josephine would not say if she were here is this, monsieur, went on Jean. Before you left us alone in this room, I had a doubt. Now I have none. The great fight is coming, and in that fight all the spirits of Kisamanuto must be with us. You will have fighting enough, and it will be such fighting it's you will remember to the end of your days. But until the last word is said, until the last hour, you must have been as you have been. I repeat that. Have you faith enough in me to believe? Yes, I believe, said Philip. It seems inconceivable, Jean, but I believe. Jean moved to the door. Good night, monsieur, he said. Good night, Jean. For a few moments after Croisette had left him, Philip stood motionless. Then he locked the door. Until he was alone, he did not know what a restraint he had put upon himself. Jean's words, the mysterious developments of the evening, the half-promise of the fulfillment of his one great hope, had all worked him into a white heat of unrest. He knew that he could not stay in his room, that it would be impossible for him to sleep, and he was not in a condition to rejoin Adair and his wife. He wanted to walk, to find relief in physical exertion. Of a sudden his mind was made up. He extinguished the light, then he reopened the window and dropped out into the night again. He made his way once more to the edge of the forest. He did not stop this time, but plunged deeper into its gloom. Moon and stars were beginning to lighten the white waste ahead of him. He knew he could not lose himself, as he could follow his own trail back. He paused for a moment in the shelter of a spruce to fill his pipe and light it. Then he went on. Now that he was alone, he tried to discover some key to all that Jean had said to him. After all, his first guess had not been so far out of the way. It was a physical force that was Josephine's deadly menace. What was this force? 
how could he associate it with the baby back in Adair House? Unconsciously his mind leaped to Thoreau, the free trader, as a possible solution, but in the same breath he discarded that as unreasonable. Such a force as Thoreau and his gang would be dealt with by Adair himself, or the forest people. There was something more. Vainly he racked his brain for some possible enlightenment. He walked ten minutes without noting the direction he was taking, when he was brought to a standstill with a sudden shock. Not twenty paces from him he heard voices. He dodged behind a tree, and an instant later two figures hurried past him. A cry rose to his lips, but he choked it back. One of the two was Jean, the other was Josephine. For a moment he stood staring after them, his hand clutching at the bark of the tree. A feeling that was almost physical pain swept over him as he realized the truth. Josephine had not gone to her room. He understood now. She had purposefully evaded him that she might be with Jean alone in the forest. Three days before, Philip would not have thought so much of this. Now it hurt. Josephine had given him her love. Yet, in spite of that, she was placing greater confidence in the half-breed than in him. This was what hurt at first. In the next breath his overwhelming faith in her returned to him. There was some tremendous reason for her being here with Jean. What was it? He stepped out from behind the tree as he stared after them. His eyes caught the pale glow of something that he had not seen before. It was a campfire, the illumination of it only faintly visible deeper in the forest. Towards this Josephine and Jean were hurrying. A low exclamation of excitement broke from his lips as a still greater understanding dawned upon him. His hand trembled. His breath came quickly. In that camp there waited for Josephine and Croisette, those who were playing the other half of the game in which he had been given a blind man's part. He did not reason or argue with himself. He accepted the fact, and no longer with hesitation his hand fell to his automatic and he followed swiftly after Josephine and the half-breed. He began to see what Jean had meant. In the room he had simply prepared Josephine for this visit. It was in the forest, and not in Adair House, that the big test of the night was to come. It was not curiosity that made him follow them now. More than ever he was determined to keep his faith with Jean and the girl, and he made up his mind to draw only near enough to give assistance if it should become necessary. Roused by the conviction that Josephine and the half-breed were not making this mysterious tryst without imperiling themselves, he stopped as the campfire burst into full view and examined his pistol. He saw figures about the fire. There were three, one sitting and two standing. The fire was not more than a hundred yards ahead of him, and he saw no tent. A moment later Josephine and Jean entered the circle of fire-glow, and the sitting man sprang to his feet. As Philip drew nearer, he noticed that Jean stood close to his companion, and that the girl's hand was clutching his arm. He heard no word spoken, and yet he could see by the action of the man who had been sitting that he was giving the others instructions which took them away from the fire, deeper into the gloom of the forest. Seventy yards from the fire, Philip dropped breathlessly behind a cedar log and rested his arm over the top of it. In his hand was his automatic. It covered the spot of gloom into which the two men had disappeared. If anything should happen, he was ready. In the fire-shadows he could not make out distinctly the features of the third man. 
He was not dressed like the others. He wore knickerbockers and high-laced boots. His face was beardless. Beyond these things he could make out nothing more. The three drew close together, and only now and then did he catch the low murmur of a voice. Not once did he hear Jean. For ten minutes he crouched motionless, his eyes shifting from the strange tableau to the spot of gloom where the others were hidden. Then suddenly Josephine sprang back from her companions. Jean went to her side. He could hear her voice now, steady and swift, vibrant, with something that thrilled him, though he could not understand a word that she was speaking. She paused, and he could see that she was tense and waiting. The other replied. His words must have been brief, for it seemed he could scarcely have spoken when Josephine turned her back upon him and walked quickly out into the forest. For another moment Jean Croisset stood close to the other. Then he followed. Not until he knew they were safe did Philip rise from his concealment. He made his way cautiously back to a dare house and re-entered his room through the window. Half an hour later, dressed so that he revealed no evidence of his excursion in the snow, he knocked at Jean's door. The half-breed opened it. He showed some surprise when he saw his visitor. "'I thought you were in bed, monsieur,' he exclaimed. "'Your room was dark.' "'Sleep,' laughed Philip. "'Do you think I can sleep to-night, Jean?' "'As well as some others, perhaps,' replied Jean, offering him a chair. "'Will you smoke, monsieur?' Philip lighted a cigar and pointed to the other's moccasined feet, wet with melting snow. "'You have been out,' he said. "'Why didn't you invite me to go with you?' "'It was part of our night's business to be alone,' responded Jean. "'Josephine was with me. She is in her room now with the baby.' "'Does Adair know you have returned?' "'Josephine has told him. He is to believe that I went out to see a trapper over on the pipestone.' "'It is strange,' mused Philip speaking half to himself. A strange reason, indeed, it must be to make Josephine say these false things. It is like driving sharp claws into her soul, affirmed Jean. I believe that I know something of what happened tonight, Jean. Are we nearer to the end, to the big fight? It is coming, monsieur. I am more than ever certain of that. The third night from this will tell us. And on that night? Philip waited expectantly. "'We will know,' replied Jean, in a voice which convinced him that the half-breed would say no more. Then he added, "'It will not be strange if Josephine does not go with you on the sledge-drive to-morrow, monsieur. It will also be curious if there is not some change in her, for she has been under a great strain. But make as if you did not see it. Pass your time as much as possible with the master of Adair. Let him not guess.' And now I am going to ask you to let me go to bed. My head aches. It is from the blow. And there is nothing I can do for you, Jean? Nothing, monsieur. At the door Philip turned. I have got a grip on myself now, Jean, he said. I won't fail you. I'll do as you say, but remember, we are to have the fight at the end. In his room he sat up for a time and smoked. Then he went to bed. Half a dozen times during the night he awoke from a restless slumber. Twice he struck a match to look at his watch. It was still dark when he got up and dressed. From five until six he tried to read. He was delighted when Metusin came to the door and told him that breakfast would be ready in half an hour. This gave him just time to shave. He expected to eat alone with Adair again this morning, 
and his heart jumped with both surprise and joy when Josephine came out into the hall to meet him. She was very pale. Her eyes told him that she had passed a sleepless night. But she was smiling bravely, and when she offered him her hand, he caught her suddenly in his arms, and held her close to his breast while he kissed her lips, and then her shining hair. Philip, she protested, Philip. He laughed softly, and for a moment his face was close against hers. My brave little darling, I understand, he whispered. I know what a night you've had, but there's nothing to fear. Nothing shall harm you, nothing shall harm you, nothing, nothing. She drew away from him gently, and there was a mist in her eyes. But he had brought a bit of color into her face, and there was a glow behind the tears. Then, her lips quivering, she caught his arm. Philip, the baby is sick, and I'm afraid. I haven't told father. Come. He went with her into the room at the end of the hall. The Indian woman was crooning softly over a cradle. She fell silent as Josephine and Philip entered, and they bent over the little flushed face on the pillow. Its breath came tightly, gaspingly, and Josephine clutched Philip's hand, and her voice broke in a sob. Feel, Philip, its little face, the fever. You must call your mother and father, he said after a moment. Why haven't you done this before, Josephine? The fever came on suddenly, within the last half hour, she whispered tensely. And I wanted you to tell me what to do, Philip. Shall I call them now? He nodded. Yes. In an instant she was out of the room. A few moments later she returned, followed by Adair and his wife. Philip was startled by the look that came into Miriam's face as she fell on her knees beside the cradle. She was ghastly white. Dumbly Adair stood and gazed down on the little human mite. He had grown to worship. And then there came through his beard a great broken breath that was half a sob. Josephine lay her cheek against his arm for a moment and said, You and Philip go to breakfast, mon père. I'm going to give the baby some of that medicine the Churchill doctor left with me. I was frightened at first, but I'm not now. Mother and I will have him out of the fever shortly. Philip caught her glance and took Adair by the arm. Alone they went into the breakfast room. Adair laughed uneasily as he seated himself opposite Philip. I don't like to see the little beggar like that, he said, talking to shake off his own and Philip's fears with a smile. It was Mignon who scared me, her face. She has nursed so many sick babies that it frightened me to see her so white. I thought he might be dying. Cutting teeth, maybe, volunteered Philip. Too young, replied Adair. Or a touch of indigestion. That brings fever. Whatever it is, Josephine will soon have him kicking and pulling my thumb again, said Adair with confidence. Did she ever tell you about the little Indian baby she found in a teepee? No. It was in the dead of winter. Mignon was out with her dogs, ten miles to the south. Captain scented the thing, the Indian teepee. It was abandoned, banked high with snow, and over it was a smallpox signal. She was about to go on, but Captain made her go to the flap of the teepee. The beast knew, I guess. And Josephine, my God, I wouldn't have let her do it for ten years of my life. There had been smallpox in that tent. The smell of it was still warm. Ugh! Oh, she looked in, and she says she heard something that was no louder than the peep of a bird. Into that death hole she went and brought out a baby. The parents, starving and half-crazed after their sickness, had left it thinking it was dead. 
Josephine brought it to a cabin close to home. In two weeks she had that kid out, rolling in the snow. Then the mother and father heard something of what had happened, and came to us as fast as their legs could bring them. You should have seen that Indian mother's gratitude. She didn't think it so terrible to leave the baby unburied. She thought it was dead. Pasu is the Indian father's name. Several times a year they come to see Josephine, and Pasu brings her the choicest furs of his trap-line, and each time he says, Nipatu mawo, which means that some day he hopes to be able to kill for her. Nice, isn't it, to have friends who'll murder your enemies for you, if you just give em the word? One can never tell, began Philip cautiously. A time might come when she would need friends, if such a day should happen. He paused, busying himself with his stake. There was a note of triumph, of exultation, in Adair's low laugh. "'Have you ever seen a fire run through a pitch-dry forest?' he asked. "'That is the way word that Josephine wanted friends would sweep through a thousand square miles of this Northland, and the answer to it would be like the answer of stray wolves to the cry of the hunt-pack.' All over Philip there surged a warm glow. "'You could not have friends like that down there, in the cities,' he said. Adair's face clouded. "'I am not a pessimist,' he answered, after a moment. "'It has been one of my few commandments, always to look for the bright spot, if there is one. But down there I have seen so many wolves, human wolves. It seems strange to me that so many people should have the same mad desire for the dollar that the wolves of the forest have for the warm, red, quivering flesh.' i have known a wolf-pack to kill five times what it could eat in a night and kill again the next night and still the next always more than enough they are like the dollar hunters only beasts among such one cannot have solid friends not very men who will not sell you for a price i was afraid to trust josephine down among them i am glad that it was you she met philip you were of the north a foster-child if not born there that day was one of gloom in Adair House. The baby's fever grew steadily worse, until in Josephine's eyes Philip read the terrible fear. He remained mostly with Adair in the big room. The lamps were lighted, and Adair had just risen from his chair when Miriam came through the door. She was swaying, her hands reaching out gropingly, her face the grey of ash that crumbles from an ember. Adair sprung to meet her, a strange cry on his lips and Philip was a step behind her. He heard her moaning words, and as he rushed past them into the hall, he knew that she had fallen, fainting into her husband's arms. In the doorway to Josephine's room he paused. She was there, kneeling beside the little cradle, and her face as she lifted it to him was tearless, but filled with a grief that went to the quick of his soul. He did not need to look into the cradle as she rose unsteadily clutching a hand at her heart, as if to keep it from breaking. He knew what he would see, and now he went to her and drew her close in his strong arms, whispering the pent-up passion of the things that were in his heart, until at last her arms stole about his neck, and she sobbed on his breast like a child. How long he held her there, whispering over and over again the words that made her grief his own, he could not have told, but after a time he knew that someone else had entered the room, and he raised his eyes to meet those of John Adair. The face of the great, grizzled giant had aged five years, but his head was erect. 
He looked at Philip squarely. He put out his two hands, and one rested on Josephine's head, the other on Philip's shoulder. "'My children,' he said gently, and in those two words were weighted the strength and consolation of the world. He pointed to the door, motioning Philip to take Josephine away, and then he went and stood at the crib-side, his great shoulders hunched over, his head bowed down. Tenderly, Philip led Josephine from the room. Adair had taken his wife to her room, and when they had entered she was sitting in a chair, staring and speechless. And now Josephine turned to Philip, taking his face between her two hands, and her soul looking at him through a blinding mist of tears. "'My Philip,' she whispered, and drew his face down and kissed him. "'Go to him now. We will come soon.' He returned to Adair like one in a dream, a dream that was grief and pain, with its one golden thread of joy. Jean was there now, and the Indian woman, and the master of Adair, had the still little babe huddled up against his breast. It was some time before they could induce him to give it to Moen. Then, suddenly, he shook himself like a great bear, and crushed Philip's shoulders in his hands. "'God knows I'm sorry for you, boy,' he cried brokenly. "'It's hurt me terribly. "'But you, it must be like the cracking of your soul. "'And Josephine, Mignon, my little flower, she is with her mother?' "'Yes,' replied Philip. "'Come, let us go. We can do nothing here. "'And Josephine and her mother will be better alone for a time.' "'I understand,' said Adair, almost roughly, in his struggle to steady himself. "'You're thinking of me, boy. God bless you for that. "'You go to Josephine and Miriam. It is your place. "'Jean and I will go into the big room.' "'Philip left them at Adair's room and went to his own, "'leaving the door open that he might hear Josephine "'if she came out into the hall. "'He was there to meet her when she appeared a little later. "'They went to Moen, and at last all things were done "'and the lights were turned low in Adair house.' Philip did not take off his clothes that night, nor did Jean and Metusin. In the early dawn they went out together to the little garden of crosses. Close to the side of Iwaka, Jean pointed out a plot. "'Josephine would say the little one will sleep best there, close to her,' he said. "'She will take care of it, monsieur. She will know and understand and keep its little soul bright and happy in heaven.' And there they digged. No one in Adair House heard the cautious fall of pick and spade. With morning came a strangely clear sun. Out of the sky had gone the last haze of cloud. Jean crossed himself and said, She knows, and has sent sunshine instead of storm. Hours later it was Adair who stood over the little grave and said words deep and strong and quivering with emotion, and it was Jean and Metusin who lowered the tiny casket into the frozen earth. Miriam was not there, but Josephine clung to Philip's side, and only once did her voice break in the grief she was fighting back. Philip was glad when it was over, and Adair was once more in his big room, and Josephine with her mother. He did not even want Jean's company. In his room he sat alone until supper-time. He went to bed early, and strangely enough slept more soundly than he had been able to sleep for some time. When he awoke the following morning, 
His first thought was that this was the day of the third night. He had scarcely dressed when Adair's voice greeted him from outside the door. It was different now, filled with the old cheer and booming hopefulness, and Philip smiled as he thought how this stricken giant of the wilderness was rising out of his own grief to comfort Josephine and him. They were all at breakfast, and Philip was delighted to find Josephine looking much better than he had expected. Miriam had sunk deepest under the strain of the preceding hours. She was still white and wan. Her hands trembled. She spoke little. Tenderly, Adair tried to raise her spirits. During the rest of that day, Philip saw but little of Josephine, and he made no effort to intrude himself upon her. Late in the afternoon, Jean asked him if he had made friends with the dogs, and Philip told him of his experience with them. Not until nine o'clock that night did he know why the half-breed had asked. At that hour, Adair House had sunk into quiet. Miriam and her husband had gone to bed. The lights were low. For an hour Philip had listened to the footsteps which he knew he would hear to-night. At last he knew that Josephine had come into the hall. He heard Jean's low voice, their retreating steps, and then the opening and closing of the door that let them out into the night. There was a short silence. Then the door reopened, and someone returned through the hall. The steps stopped at his own door, a knock, and a moment later he was standing face to face with Croisette. "'Throw on your coat and cap and come with me, monsieur,' he cried in a low voice, "'and bring your pistol.' Without a word Philip obeyed. By the time they stood out in the night his blood was racing in a wild anticipation. Josephine had disappeared. Jean gripped his arm. "'Tonight something may happen,' he said, in a voice that was as hard and cold as the blue lights of the aurora in the polar sky. "'It is possible we may need your help. I would have asked Metusin, but it would have made him suspicious of something, and he knows nothing. You have made friends with the dogs? You know, Captain?' "'Yes.' Then go to them, go as fast as you can, monsieur, and if you hear a shot to-night, or a loud cry from out there in the forest, free the dog swiftly, captain first, and run with them to our trail, shouting, Kill! 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 with every breath you take, and don't stop so long as there is a footprint in the snow ahead of you, or a human bone to pick, do you understand, monsieur? His eyes were points of flame in the gloom. Do you understand? Yes, gasped Philip. But Jean, if you understand, that is all, interrupted Jean. If there is a peril in what we are doing this night, the pack will be worth more to us than a dozen men. If anything happens to us, they will be our avengers. Go. There is not one moment for you to lose. Remember, a shot, a single cry. His voice, the glitter in his eyes, told Philip that this was no time for words. He turned and ran swiftly across the clearing in the direction of the dog-pit. Ten minutes later he came into a gloom warm with the smell of beasts. Eyes of fire glared at him. The snapping of fangs and the snarling of savage throats greeted him. One by one he called the names of the dogs he remembered, called them over and over again, advancing fearlessly among them, until he dropped upon his knees with his hand on the chain that held Captain. From there he talked to them, and their whines answered him. Then he fell silent, listening. 
he could hear his own heart beat. Every fibre in his body was a-quiver with excitement and a strange fear. The hand that rested on Captain's collar trembled. In the distance an owl hooted, and the first note of it sent a red-hot fire through him. Still further away a wolf howled. Then came a silence in which he thought he could hear the rush of blood through his own throbbing veins. With his finger at the steel snap on Captain's collar, he waited. End of chapter 19